Welcome to episode 59 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand papermaking and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand papermaking studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat and papermaking masterclasses here in the studio and I teach online classes about paper, light, and books. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Pamela Paulsrud, a Chicago artist who began papermaking to examine and explore the creative process from inception to completion. From the formation of sheets to working with fibers in its various degrees, she was led to create spontaneous marks within the pulp. I dipped my brush in the ink and it was my, there was something that happened in that moment in time where I, it's hard to explain, but it was like mm-hmm. I could see the ink flow from the brush mm-hmm. into the fibers of the paper. And the medium became an art unto itself and now offers her a multidisciplinary approach in her exploration of capturing sound or resonance in paper with sound wave phenomena. We talk about the Tree Whispers project that Pam and Marilyn Swartz started in the year 2000 after Pam conceived of it on a bike ride, her daily practice, and where the project is today. It's still growing strong. More than 7,000 paper rounds created by people from around the world feature stories, poems, and imagery about trees. These discs are strung into tree-like forms for exhibition And Pam tells me about the time that Greenpeace contacted her and how Tree Whispers became an influential part of one of their activist campaigns to save a forest. Enjoy our conversation, and after you listen, be sure to visit the show notes page. Go to HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can view images and find out more about Pam's work and the Tree Whispers project. Well, Pam Palsrud, welcome to Paper Talk. Thank you, Helen. I'm happy to be here and uh, excited to talk with you. Yeah, likewise. Um, so tell me a little bit about your uh, growing up and art, art-related art activities. Well, I um, let's see. I grew up in a very small town in rural northwest Iowa in kind of the hills there. Uh, it seemed like an idyllic childhood in that... Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of structure. You, we um, climbed trees, you know, walked and biked everywhere. We hiked out to our friends and rode ponies and uh, laid in the grass and watched ladybugs crawl up, you know. Um, we, you know, spent time and looking at the night sky and shooting stars. And I, I think all in all, it uh, invited imagination, curiosity, observation, and creativity. You know, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of structured art or um, activities along that. It was sort of like you had to make your own um, creative right. installation structures. Fun. Yeah, I, I actually reminds me of my childhood. I grew up in Texas, and uh-huh. um, we had woods behind our house, and I was just—it right. was very unstructured. Right. Right. Very nice. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, where did you go to college? Um, I went to, well, I've been to several places. I went to, started out at Wartburg 
College in Waverly, Iowa, where I declared an ma uh, art major. I went back home for the summer and did a variety of uh, summer jobs, uh, including, uh, you know, everything from teaching swimming lessons to, to mowing the lawn at the nursing home. They pulled me in there to work um, much to my chagrin, but I ended up falling in love with it. I fell in love with the people and um, the things that were going on there, and it totally shifted my life at that point in time, and I ended up going to North, uh, Northfield College and declared a major in nursing. So, um, yeah, so I went there. Uh, also did uh, summer school at the University of Minnesota there where I took art classes as well. Um, and I feel like that's one thing is that art and the healing component has always sort of woven together throughout my life. I could never quite figure it out um, mm -hmm. until much later how they were really integrated. But um, um, uh, and, and then I also went to uh, after, well, uh, we, my husband and I uh, moved to, um, after he finished college, uh, we were married and moved to a small farm again in, in Iowa, Northwest Iowa. I love that farm. And I worked in a sm very small hospital there, uh, which was really a wonderful experience, challenging, but very wonderful. We moved from there to Chicago where I went to school again. And uh, after I had my daughters, I was either going to go back to work in nursing or decided that I really wanted to pursue more art and uh, went back to Loyola in graphic design. Ah. So, so it, and then of course, later on ended up at um, uh, Columbia college in their book and paper program. But it was in, it was at Loyola that uh, in graphic design where I really fell in love with letters, uh, studying, studying typography and really wanted to, to know more Um at which point in time I uh, sought out the Chicago Calligraphy Collective, which has been a really wonderful resource uh, throughout my life now. Um, and how did, I want to just uh, interrupt you and ask a couple of questions. One is, um, why do you think you were drawn to art originally to study as a major, that first experience in college? Uh, well, I, you know, it's just something, it's just an innate thing. Mm -hmm. It's hard, you know, it's hard to explain. Yeah. And I'd like to say specifically, even more so handwriting, because I feel like that's the thing that's really been the thread too that's uh, followed me throughout my whole career. I mean, even when I was in, um, you know, the minute I had a pencil in my hand and could uh, write uh, letter forms, it was like cracking a code. And I was so excited that I immediately taught myself a script. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was uh, something that uh, I observed and could actually see. I mean, I would look at people's handwriting all the time, even as a little kid. And it was like you could see the personality in the handwriting. Mm -hmm. I wondered why, you know, my parents could have that same rhythm with their handwriting. And they were so different. You know, I could tell them apart. And why was that? I mean, I was curious about that at a very young age. So. Um, yeah, so that's been a thread that's, you know, run through my life. Um, and, and and did you know that calligraphy was a thing? No. You, you mentioned Loyola. So yeah. Well, not, then, yeah, yeah, once I got into Loyola and, uh, and it was after studying typography that uh, I 
and graphic design that I really wanted to know more just about making letter forms myself, really to get into it more deeply. And that's mm -hmm. when I found the Chicago Calligraphy Collective. Um, and they bring in uh, people from all over the world to teach classes as well as a community within you know the sh greater Chicago area so it's it's just been a really wonderful support for not yeah. only classes but shows and and um, are there regular like monthly meetings the, like that? yeah the different um, communities because it's such a large area have um, study groups, you know, and they're all different, you know, some get together and actually have projects, some share information or what they're working on. So each one has sort of a different uh, slant to it. Um, and and uh, one really uh, important, is, I think, uh, touchstone, I think, in the my calligraphy uh, was going up to a place in Wisconsin called The Clearing. Um, it's a place that was built by Jens Jensen or Jens Jensen, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it, uh, mm -hmm. who was an architect, Chicago architect. And uh, it, I went up there specifically to study with Thomas Ingmeyer, who was a calligrapher who I, uh, from California, who I deeply admired. He was co-teaching with Kaz Tanahashi, which at the time, I'm embarrassed to say now, that I didn't know who he was, but I wanted to study with Thomas. I was ready to follow him anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and it was amazing experience with him, but this, the, the day was split in half, and Thomas would teach a part of the day, and it was, a lot of it was done writing with music and incorporating that aspect to it. Um, and Kaz... Um, was is a Japanese master who uh, would teach with the traditional Japanese brush and uh, brush strokes and ink. And at the time, I was a young mom. I had two little two little girls, and my day was filled with uh, you know running from one thing to another. There wasn't a whole lot of time to stop and really you know um, pause. And so when I went to Kaz's class. The first thing we'd walk in, and he he walked in in his beautiful kimono, and and the paper was set out, and we had ink and our brush, and and we would do this sort of a meditation, and then you would take your brush, and we'd make one stroke, one brush stroke, and then we'd wait, and we'd make another brush stroke, mm. and we'd wait, and and I'll tell you though, it was really hard as a young mom because I would look at my watch and thinking, okay, I could have gotten groceries, you know changed diapers, you know, done all these things. And, and it was really challenging. And the next day we go and we sit and we make one stroke. And it wasn't until the third day where I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. We went in and I sat down and, and uh, I thought, okay, here we go. Maybe we'll get another stroke today. So we, I picked up my brush and I dipped my brush in the ink. And it was my, there was something that happened in that moment in time where I it's hard to explain, but it was like mm -hmm. I could see the ink flow from the brush mm. into the fibers of the paper. It was like my, it was almost like I felt like my essence going into that. And it was like, and it, it just changed everything for me. It just, just shifted everything. At which point in time I went out, I would always take hikes in between the class and I would usually go look for the clearing because that was the name of the place. And it was that day that I realized it was called the clearing because he had built it for his students to come and clear their head. So I felt right. like that was, you know, appropriate thing to uh, discovery on that very day. But um, Kaz's 
um, teaching and um, uh, approach has has had a really strong impact as Thomas as well, you know, so it's yeah. really a beautiful combination. Right. And I'm just curious about that moment because I've heard another artist tell me the same thing. I'm wondering if you've shared that experience with other artists, because this is a paste paper maker who paints Madeline Durham. Uh huh. And she had the same kind of experience, not, not with another person. It was in her studio, but where she just, got her style yeah yeah just yeah. came to her yeah and it was you know now that I I mean it was really profound for me yeah, yeah. and um, you know and now that I think about it I hadn't even really thought about it in these terms it was the ink uh, from the brush into the, and again into the fibers of the paper and I now that I think about it it's that's sort of been the two things you know that have really you know followed uh, my career is, you know, the, working with the brush and the ink and and the paper and how they come together and those two, um, you know, united or... Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. since this is Paper Talk, tell me a little bit about the paper and then um, we'll post some images of your work, but do you call them, what do you call your work? Is it painting? Is it... Oh, well, <laughs> I, the thing is I've got such a variety, uh, mm -hmm. so... Um, I have pulp paintings, mm -hmm. um, and and that's the thing too. Is I've gone from, uh, you know, I was doing the calligraphy. If I could just sort of segue out of that yeah. just briefly, um, because I have was working, you know, calligraphically, and I was always looking for different kinds of papers to work on. That was a quest of mine, mm -hmm. and that's when I actually fell in love with handmade paper because I would buy handmade paper. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Wouldn't it be great to be, be involved in the whole creative process? You know, not just putting something on top of, I mean, not just, that's a huge yeah. thing to, to bring the work to it, but also to make the paper. I just thought, oh, wouldn't that be really wonderful? So where uh, were you buying your paper? Oh, I well. Icos yeah. or? Well, I, yeah, oh my gosh, Icos, what a wonderful, yeah, yeah. wonderful um that's a paper store that used to be in Chicago. Yes. Closed and, about yeah. 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And that, that was an experience just to go into there. Yeah. I mean, really, because they had beautiful handmade papers and papers from Japan and and pigments and brushes and all kinds of wonderful things. But also, um, Paper Source was mm -hmm. in its very, very early stages where Sue had a paper, it was a framing shop, is actually, I believe, how it started. Right. It was not far from me. I found it. It was like finding a candy store in your own backyard. And she had all this beautiful handmade paper. Oh. I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, and that's essentially all it was, was handmade paper and the framing. Not handmade paper. They had all kinds of paper. And right. uh, that was like a truly a wonderful, uh, you know, connection. Um, but then after I started working on this paper and wanted to, like I said, be involved in the entire creative process. That's when I um, found um, Marilyn Sward and uh, who had paper press with uh, Linda Sorkin. Okay. Her, let, her let me just, uh, let's just, just, what is Sue's last name who founded paper source? Do you oh remember? dear. Okay. That's all right. Okay. Well, paper source was founded in Chicago yes. and it yes. was first just one store and then one it store. grew. Yeah. To and this... it was just paper really, as I remember yeah. it anyway, and framing. She had framing. Right. Yeah. Right. And then it grew to have many stores and yeah, then corporate. Yeah. it's been sold. 
Yes. In yes. the last couple of years. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I just want to get that in there. Yeah. Okay. That's, it's a very different, totally different store now than, yeah. than what right. it was in the very beginning. But um, those were sort of the two main places where I bought my paper. Because it was so, I mean, it was right there and they had everything. You know, it was like. <laughs> right, right. Wonderful. Okay. And so then you mentioned you went to Columbia College, Chicago. But, mm -hmm. oh, no, you, you met Marilyn. First, yeah, that was first. Paper press. Paper press, yeah, and so uh, and that's where I learned to make paper. And paper press also moved in uh, to several different places as well. And at one point in time, I got so involved with it that I actually rented studio space in. Uh, I think it was down, when they were down on Jackson. Yeah, that's where it was because they they had. I think they started in Evanston, if I'm not right, and then moved to Chicago. Uh, and they were in a couple different venues there, but it was in Jacks when it was on Jackson. Uh, that's that's when I rented studio space there. And it was really wonderful because uh, they had a gallery there as well, and there were other paper makers there. It was you know it was open. You could go in any time, and you had that community where you could really see what other people were doing. They had instructors come in as well. Um, so it, and then they like I said they had the exhibits in the little gallery that they had. It was, it was really a wonderful um, time. Right. Okay. So you were, you were um, making paper to do calligraphy. I, and yes. And, and so I was, that's how I started because I wanted uh, paper to write on. And once, you know, the more I got into paper making, as you know, it can be, you know, this rabbit hole uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, well, a, a good one though, sort of an Alice in Wonderland kind of one, yeah. um, where I realized, you know, it was like a whole new world opening up, and you know, all the different fibers, the different things that fibers could do, um, and I realized before I was using it as a substrate, something mm -hmm. to write on, right. and then I realized, okay, I started to make all this wonderful paper, and then you could do, you know. Um, uh, pigmented, you know, um, cotton, you know, highly beaten cotton and pigmented and, and do, I could do my mark making, you know, right in the wet pulp, you know, in the paper. Yeah. And, uh, and then I started, or, or just making just wonderful things and structures and on armatures and all different kinds of things. And then it went totally away from using it as a substrate, but more as, oh, well, uh, I like to say as a creative dance partner. I just felt like it was something that had so many wonderful opportunities. Uh, one of the things that I did with pulp, because uh, mark making, I went from handwriting to mark making, which I've always done as well. I mean, mm -hmm. even as a little kid, I would play and do a lot of mark making. And I realized too that that comes from sort of the handwriting and the energy work that is in the handwriting. Um, but I realized, you know, like I said, you could do that in, within the pulp. But then also, I um, I got so excited. I want I made all these different marks one day, and then I thought, wouldn't it be great if these were like really huge, and um, they it, there was no substrate. You just had the mark. So. Yeah out in my, I found these great big, I don't know what they, how I did that now, I can't remember, glass I think it was, and I, so I sculpted actually these large marks out of pigmented pulp, and when they dried then they, it was just the marks on the, the paper were the marks. Right. 
But again, I, you know, like I said, um, getting back to handwriting and the energy and the mark making, I feel like to me, and I, I've said this before in, uh, with other people, is that I feel like handwriting is like a cross between a fingerprint and an EKG. So it's like not only who you are, but how you are in that moment in time. Mm. You know, your handwriting changes, you know, throughout the day and whatever your circumstances are. If you're standing in line trying to write a check, which most people don't do anymore, but, you know, or, you know, or signing that little thing, you know, at the store after you, with your credit card is very different than if you write it, a sweet little love note, you know, to your, um, to somebody, yeah. you know, so, um, so, so again, um, it, 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 it's the, I think it's that energetic quality that so intrigues me in mm -hmm. all of my work. Yeah. Has there been like professionally, was there ever crossover between the art and healing? Yes, absolutely. Well, and it came sort of much later because I mean, uh, I started, uh, studying healing touch, um, at um, maybe 10 years ago or something. And, and I realized, I was really, I, like I said, I've always been interested in energy. And I thought, how, how is that involved in healing? You know, before my uh, education was in Western medicine, which kind of didn't really address that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so I felt like this was a component that really spoke to me. So I looked into healing touch because it actually is a, um, uh, founded by nurses, so they were able to bring in different modalities, energy modalities, and 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 the ideas to bring it into the Western world in a way that would be palatable for others. Um, so I found that really interesting, and then I realized at the same time I was studying, um, looked into cymatics, which is sound made visible for my artwork. And all of a sudden, it was at that point in time where I started to see this uh, sort of crossover, and the things that I was studying for healing touch were the same things that I was studying mm -hmm. in cymatics and in my artwork. So it was sort of, it took me a long time to really have that aha moment that it was, uh, oh, yeah, it's really about vibration and you know and, and that's what energy is it's it's that vibration you know and um so i was really excited to sort of bring that into my artwork and that's when i was start, started to do the cymatic pieces um originally um i i what i wanted to do and this is still in my um uh to-do list was to get this massive vat and pump uh, sound up through that to create these forms and then pull the screen through that. And actually, uh, my neighbor is a professional musician and we actually tried it, not with, uh -huh. but it was a pretty big, it was a well, maybe four by four vat that we were trying to pull it up, but it, we couldn't quite get it to happen. Um, a neighbor is, um, was a, a retired engineer. He just happened to have this huge acrylic tube and we put a speaker underneath it and I put a, uh, um, paper mold on top or uh, structure on top and we were I could get the forms in there but I couldn't wasn't able to pull them up 
Mm. I, or I could get some small ones, but I couldn't quite get the really large ones. So that's still yet to come. So stay tuned on that one. Oh, yeah. But in the meantime, what I did, because I, I had applied for a residency at Columbia. This is after I graduated. And so I had time. So I had like a week in this beautiful studio. And, um, and uh, so since I couldn't make that happen, what I thought I would do w was to make all these different um, uh, sand formations because that's sort of how you see this in a science experiment or you know, in high school. They, um, or even when you run a violin bow over a metal plate, uh, you can see the sand and sprinkle sand on it. You can see different formations mm -hmm. you know, that um, occur. Um, depending on how much vibration is going up through it. Um, so what I did was get this little digital generator and I could run different megahertz of sound through there so you could get different sound formations. And, and that was really um, sort of another epiphany for me as well because between the different formations of sand, it would have to go into this what they call chaotic state. And, and it sort of helped me <laughs> sort of... Um, in sort of life lessons, I guess, to realize, you know, that it can't, things can't go from one form to another without going through that chaos. And so I think of that now as like a transition, which is for me a more gent gentler way of thinking of chaos. <laughs> a transition. Um, yeah. Right, right, like right. That. So, mm -hmm. so that was rather interesting. Yeah. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go back to um, briefly. Just uh, let's talk about Marilyn Sward and who she who she was, and then how you ended up at Columbia College because it must have been at the very beginning. It was yeah. It was really early on. It was when they were still in their old space. But Marilyn, um, well, she had an undergraduate degree from the University of Illinois. And uh, like I said, I think it was like in the early 70s is when she started the paper press. Paper press. Or the, yeah, with Linda Sorkin, who's now Linda Sorkin Eisenberg. And, um, and then she was also very interested in uh, photography and using the photography, um, how to transfer those phot uh, photographic images onto Hemi paper. And so she co-wrote a book as well with uh, Kitty Reeve, I think, right? Was that, am I right? Yeah, Catherine Reeve, I think is. Yes. The, I was yeah. just looking that book up, The New Photography. Yeah, right, mm -hmm. right. And, uh, and, and she, it, it, Marilyn had her hands in so many different things. She was just always on the go. She taught at Haystack. I think she became a, maybe was on the board there, maybe even president. Mm -hmm. um, she was adjunct at the Art Institute in their fiber program. And I think it was about that time in the early 90s is when they started the, um, or maybe mid nineties, right? When they brought the um, paper making, Barbara Metz was, uh, had a, uh, the book uh, studio of book arts. That was called yeah. book arts. And yeah. And then there was Audrey Niffenager, you know, she was doing the printing and Suzanne Cohen Lang, who was in the interdisciplinary arts program. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story about these women coming together with this wonderful idea and bringing these arts together. I, I love that story. Yeah. And, and it was such a rich time and Columbia agreed to give them a space, but it was kind of like, well, here, we'll try it over here first. And it was on the seventh floor of the Wajbash building. Were you ever there, Helen, in, in its early stages? I don't think so. Mm -mm. It, was, it, was, it was 
it was raw, gritty, and wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and like I say, it was on the seventh floor, and the elevator worked most of the time. And uh, and the beautiful thing was too, it you had twenty four hour access, mm. you know, and and they had community um, studios there as well, so people could come and rent space there. So there was that cross pollination, which was so wonderful. It was just, it, it was some sometimes wonderful, sometimes not, because the the rooms the seat it had those really high ceilings you know mm. and the walls only went up so high so you could hear everything in this whole massive space but it was what it was and and um, and so you did your mfa there well or, i i did uh my ma because MA. at the time oh, they didn't have an mfa, MFA. Yeah. Okay. And Marilyn is, was actually the one that uh, suggested, she goes, well, you know, because I, I was, you know, talking about taking classes. She was like, well, why don't you just get your MA? And I was like, well, okay. And so then while I was, just as I was finishing up doing my thesis, they added the MFA. And she was like, well, why don't you just, you know, and so I was like, oh, okay. You know, so I actually did, ended up doing two two thesis, or do you say thesis? Ah. I don't know how you say that. Um, but, uh, and that, let's see, my, I was there in the, and then towards the end of my being in the program is when they secured the new space, um, you know, beautiful paper making studio, they had letterpress, they had book binding. And, um, but I was only there for like a half a semester to finish up. So really all, almost all of my work was done in, in the old space. Yeah. Right. And you were an older student. You had children. Yes. What age yeah. were your children then? They were hmm, About. probably, let's see. Uh, let's see. My oldest daughter was 15, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it was um you know trying to think how you can juggle all these things because i realized too just you know as i was kind of thinking about this interview is like family is an important part of you know my balancing act as well and so there's so many things that they take precedence and uh but it was a time where i felt like they had enough independence and my husband was able to help out and and so it I felt like in a way it was a good thing for them too um, mm -hmm. because they, you know, just, yeah. To, to see a working mom. Right, yeah. right. And following and, your passion. And yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, they would follow me when I was trying to collect sound, you know, because it was an interdisciplinary program, which is why I loved it so much too. Yeah. That's the other thing is that it wasn't just one thing. Uh, it right. was sound. It was performance. And at some point in time you would, always be in your wheelhouse and another time you'd be very very uncomfortable because you know you weren't a performer you weren't maybe a writer but it put you in with other people who were and it really I felt like elevated everybody's mm -hmm. art form and and connection that's what was so wonderful too was mm -hmm. the the connection right and I want to mention you you married your high school sweetheart I did mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. His name was Art, so that's no Art. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's fun. Uh, I'll say so. Just briefly describe one of your theses. Um, okay, let's see. Well, uh, the 
the first one that I did was um, it, it was artist books and handmade paper. Well, they both were, uh -huh. um, and and they were both I think um, focused on what I call landscape narratives, and the uh, if I could go back to like I was uh, again studying. Uh, letterpress at Columbia and just sort of um, went back to Iowa for the holidays and you know where I grew up and these snowy cornfields and and you know how you see something your whole life and then all of a sudden you really see it mm -hmm. and there were these mm -hmm. cornfields with just these stalks sticking up that were about a foot tall you know the, the corn had been picked and the stalks were left in the ground and there was a light a white snowy you know um, coating on the ground and and I as I was driving through there I was like looked and I was like oh my gosh it's like a field of text it looked just mm -hmm. like text because I'd been handling all this yeah this type and looking at it upside down and backwards and pruning you know mm -hmm. letting and all that kind of stuff and all of a sudden it was like oh my gosh and and it is it's like a narrative of the landscape and it tells not you know what's been going on with the land what's been not only planted there but the season and there was so much information um, just as I saw this and when I came back to the city there was a little cornfield not too far from me that still hadn't been swallowed up by development and I went out there and I there was a beautiful snow and it was the same kind of these beautiful corn stalks and and I was like, oh my gosh. And I just felt like standing out there and going, okay, here it is. This is, this is my thesis right here. I can't do anything better than this. It's so beautiful. The lines yeah. against the snow. And, and I felt like they, they looked like sculptures to me and some kind of code and, or letter form or something like that. And so then I would go out different days and I'd photograph them, sometimes with shadows, sometimes not. I, I tiptoed out and I was like painting stocks to see what it would look like. I'm surprised I wasn't arrested at some point in time. <laughs> um, but I actually pulled up, it's not a good time to be harvesting, you know, fiber in the middle of winter, but I did. And I grabbed, a, you know, got a bunch of corn. So I made paper out of corn and I mm. found all these different fibers and I actually as I pulled up one of the pieces of corn a great big clump of dirt stuck to the roots and um, I actually used that as a base for one of my um, corn stock books called crop rotation <laughs> where yeah. I bound um, as I was also studying you know traditional book binding I couldn't wait to finish my models and then go see what I could do with it somewhere else you know so what I did was take different fibers and bound them together sort of on elastic and then um, uh, wrap them around the corn stalks so it was like crop rotation because that's what you do in fields you know for a, a healthier um, crop. field right crop and uh, so that was one of the books. I also took Kozo and made these massive sheets of paper that I bound to uh, the old Christmas tree trunk that we had. Um, that was, and you know, people were throwing them out around then. I was like, oh my gosh! It was like I just wanted to go grab up all the mm -hmm. the old Christmas trees and use those. Um, so that was one. And then, oh, and then I also had another old Christmas tree that most of the needles had fallen off except for like right at the top and I took some recycled um, 
wrapping paper and some broken bulbs and the yeah, you know, recycled stuff and I made paper out of that and I bound that to that little tree and what was really wonderful, I put it actually put that one in a Christmas tree stand. Mm-hmm. And it was in the it was in the exhibit and it was kind of fun because as it kind of dried out and people walked by, it was like a performance piece because the little needles would fall off the top as people would walk by uh, and kind of celebrate yeah. the <laughs> piece. But um, And then I had, as I said, lots of visual images of the fields and, mm-hmm. and the stocks and that kind of thing as well. Uh, oh, and the other part of that was um, – a huge uh, wall installation, I guess you'd call it an installation, where I took the photographs and did the um, gel medium of the photographs onto the wall. It was called, um, what was it called? Cornfield Haiku. And so it looked, when you looked at it, it did look like, almost like Japanese writing. And, Uh uh, and, you know, people would walk in. It was kind of the first thing they saw as they walked into the gallery and people would, you know, interested but different people would think it would say they were they would try and read it and they think uh-huh. for sure they knew what it said someone who was deaf thought for sure it had something to do with sign language so everybody took their own context and um, created a story around it I thought that was really wonderful too so that oh, was yeah. sort of the main components of that and could you tell it was cornfield at all if you looked at well it was like the individual corn each i took individual pictures of the corn stalks like okay. and i was just going through the field and i just felt like okay that's enough yeah and and this was before cell phones and stuff so i was taking actual photographs of the camera right. and then um but then i felt like each one would be like no take me take me so i so i had like you know hundreds of pictures but they're all just so beautiful Mm, I love that. Hey, listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to tell you about the Paper Studio, my free Facebook group that has been evolving over the past several years. I'm re-energizing it in 2020 to include a monthly paper challenge. It's also a place to share what you're working on, get encouragement when you need a little push, be inspired with new ideas, tips, and tricks, all having to do with paper, of course. Join us by going to Facebook and searching for the group, The Paper Studio. Now back to the episode. You were talking about your tree pieces, and I want to segue into your, I think it's a monumental project, Tree Whispers. Yes, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, tell me how that got started, and then describe it. Yeah. Um, well, um, I should probably start with saying that sort of my morning routine was to um, was a bike ride through the forest preserve, and so um, you know I get up in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, and head out. And I had to go through you know a few alleyways and streets to get there. But once I got there, it was like um, really wonderful. It was you know really great exercise. And, and it's you, a forest. It's a forest, yeah. yeah. And there's a path, so you don't have to worry about traffic and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And and uh, it, so it was my exercise, and I realized, you know, that it was also my commute because I work at home, so I go out and I come back. And then it was my business meeting because I would be thinking about what I was going to do for the day and, you know, mm-hmm. plan things out. But then the more I went, it was sort of like, I, I don't know if it's that um, – the pedaling or just being out into nature or just that 
the sameness of what I was doing, I realized in retrospect, not at the time, but in retrospect, that it was also my meditation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was sort of, I realized too, in retrospect, that it was in that second half of the ride where most of my work has come from. I, I'm not the type of person that I can sit and say, okay, I'm going to like make something or do something. I, it's like something has to come to me. I can't, Mm -hmm. it's like I can, you know, start doing things and, and, but it's more the doingness of it. But for me, the real inspired work is when it comes from somewhere else. And to me, that's where it usually comes from or the beach. It's somewhere out in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was on one of those rides and I kind of glanced the second half of the ride and I glanced into the forest and it's like I saw it. Um, mm-hmm. You've seen what the project looks like. That's what I saw. And I mean, call it what you want, a vision, you know, I don't know. But but it's like, I was like, oh my gosh. You know, so but describe, it's, we need a visual here. Oh, okay, so sorry. Describe. Yeah. So, well, Tree Whispers is thousands of pieces of handmade paper bound together in long uh, segments hanging from the ceiling of gallery or wherever it has to be hanging, you know, and so there's many, many strands, um, much like trees. And the Does handmade, that make sense? Yeah, but the handmade paper pieces are five-inch diameter circles? The five that they're, they're – they can be any size. Okay. So they're from two inches to three feet at this point in time. Yeah. So, so they're, but they're strung together. uh, And um, like I said, they're, I I put them on book binding thread because I feel like they are stories. People, what people do then is to share their tree story, their tree poetry, their imagery on the handmade paper or simply making the paper in honor of a tree, you know, and anybody, everybody, professionals, novice, you know, artists, kids, anybody is invited to participate in this project. So you, so you, let's just back up a little. So you saw this, you saw these hanging. So I saw this. Yeah. I I saw this. Yeah. So this is what I saw and I was so excited and it's synchronicity. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. The wonderful part of that was that that day I was supposed to drop off some work to Marilyn's ward. Uh, she was curating the show, and uh, she said, you know, just drop it off at her house. She lived not too far from me, and because uh, she usually wasn't there. She was so busy. She was, you know, traveling the world or, you know, going to meetings or doing whatever. She was a very busy artist and mm-hmm. uh, teacher and educator and many, many things. And this um, was after you had graduated. Yes, yes, this was after I graduated. Mm-hmm. So, so I was dropping off some artwork and I knocked on the door. I, you know, I knew where to leave it if she wasn't there. She happened to be there. And I said, oh, Marilyn, you won't believe it. I, I have to tell you. So we, so we went on, on her front porch. It's a hot summer day. And she says, well, let me get some lemonade. And we sat there and we talked. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this, you know, let me tell you about what I saw. And I was so excited. And her work um, was also very nature-based. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think we had a very similar thread that ran through all of her work. And, um, and she, we talked about it. She goes, well, is it a, do you care if I collaborate with you? I said, oh, my gosh, no, that would be wonderful. It would be very exciting. And the more we talked, we realized this wasn't – we could easily do the work. We could make I – mean, she has a papermaking studio up in um, Wisconsin. We could go make the paper. We could, you know, find it. We could do it done. But then we realized, no, this isn't about us. 
you know, this is about the trees mm -hmm. as a um, um, invitation for others to connect to their tree story and to each other and to um, to share this. Uh, uh, yeah, to share our uh, love of trees. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're like, well, okay, then now what do we do? So she was going, actually, the uh, IAMPA conference was in Italy that year. So we went up to her studio and we made these little tiny paper rounds. We did some um, uh, some kind of, uh, what do you call it? Ge what is that little Geico printing? Geico. Geico printing, printer. yeah. Mm -hmm. and uh, of tree rounds on it and made a little um, announcement that, you know, this is, and at this time we didn't, we were like, what are we going to call it? Wow. We couldn't think of a name. Mm -hmm. And so I think initially we were thinking Alianthus and then it was an interesting name, but then found out that was like kind of a, what do they call weed tree or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, geez, we really need another name. But I think when we sent that out, that's probably what was on there. Um, and, and so IATMA is the International Association of Paper Makers and Paper Artists. Yes, thank you. So she yeah. took, so she, took she took those. We made those, and she took those with her. So it was sort of like Johnny Appleseed. You know, mm -hmm. we're spreading the word, mm -hmm. and um, and then uh, we also did all kinds of workshops. We were invited down to shortly after that. We were invited down to it's wild in Chicago at the Field Museum, and. Um, we did paper making demos there. We went to the Morton Arboretum many years, make, had these huge paper making events on Arbor Day. Uh, we've done, we did Earth Day, uh, you know, so we were doing all kinds of paper making workshops. So we we're introducing the project. Now, a lot of that paper, people were so excited about making paper for the first time, they usually took it home with them. So I'm thinking, okay, well, there's this many in the project. Well, there's, 10 times more pieces that are out there in the world, you know, right. which is fine, you know, because it's introducing the love of papermaking and to share the story. And, and that's the other thing is too, is through this process, I've heard like thousands of stories about trees uh, from people who thought they had none, you know, you know, we'd ask people, you know, do you have a favorite tree or have you climbed a tree or, you know, did you plant a tree? And, and uh, I don't have a story. And the, the, like 20 minutes later, they're telling us their sixth story. And, and I've heard wonderful stories about stories, you know, where people have left the, the installation uh, at the gallery and have gone with families and spent the whole evening talking about trees mm -hmm. and sharing stories together. There was a family, a friend of mine went to Israel and she found a paper making there and got all this paper from him and they sat around and and told tree stories and sang music and just laughed all night. And it's like, you know, I love these stories and I love that these stories are being told and shared in so many different ways and to sort of reconnect to that piece of us, it's connecting to the trees, to our own stories, to one another. I feel like there's so many different components that go along with it. Yeah. yeah. And then not, too, not to mention that, paper a lot of paper is made from trees a lot, a lot uh, yeah exactly yes right right so you're mm -hmm. making paper trees it's kind of funny sort of um, yes yeah but, but but a lot of paper i know i was actually kind of chastised once about making paper from trees when um well uh, uh, there's the project that i collaborated or uh, 
a group that I collaborated with who the Greenpeace project had um, connected with me. Um, and someone asked, why are you, you, if, you know, if you're trying to save trees, why are you using this paper? And, but my point is that most of the paper that's in there is recycled and, yeah. or made out of other fibers. Plant fibers There's so many yeah. different fibers that you can make. Plant fibers. Yeah. So, um, so I right. felt like that so, needed so to I be wanna, clarified. Let's go back to, um, so you've, you have built up over the years. What year did this start? Tree Whispers. Uh, oh, that's a good question. 2000. So it's 20, so here's 20 years. It's 20 years in 2020. How cool yeah. is that? Right? Yeah. 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 And so you, and, and a lot of these rounds have a story written on them. They have stories, they have poetry, they have images. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and some art, like I say, are hand, handmade paper and celebrating that piece, right. you know, and, but, oh. and then the other thing too is, about the exhibit, sorry to interrupt, but I feel like there's all these stories which are available for people to see, to read, to look at, but there's also something about, again, going back to the energy, when you think about all the different hands that have gone into making that paper, mm. to walk through there, there's something um, very quieting about the whole thing. I mean, I've had people walk in there and just start weeping, you know, I mean, it's like, there's, I don't know, it feels very profound for me. I I can uh, understand that, and I think I heard you say, and this was probably a couple years ago on a video, that there were over six thousand of these rounds, and um, and you can walk through the forest, and uh, yeah, just imagine six hundred six thousand voices all around you. Right, right, yeah, right. That's powerful. And now I know there's well over seven thousand. I'm not a good. Mm -hmm. uh, tabulator on those kinds of things and and uh you know the exhibit every time it's shown is it, it's not like you can just take it and set it up because every ceiling height is different every mm -hmm. structure that i work with is different and so the work sort of really moves all the time your piece might be down low one time up high next time eye level next time and and so there's a real sort of movement to the whole thing as well and it's different in every space you know yeah and um there's so many facets to it and you have a wonderful website that will it's is it treewhispers.com treewhispers.com right yeah mm -hmm. so everybody look at that and uh, go and you can research this project in depth but um uh what what was the first place it was exhibited um uh let's well it was columbia college okay yeah, yeah. in the new space yeah actually okay. mm -hmm. and it was there twice because we uh hung it in uh maryland passed away in 2008 and she we had a there was a retrospective of her work there so we used part of the studio there for the oh. tree whispers project oh. so it's actually been there twice mm -hmm. uh-huh okay and um and also online, you have a fabulous blog where you share a lot of the stories and pictures. And right, right. Do you, is that a regular twice a week or how? Oh, I, I'm not regular, regular with it. I try and, you know, <laughs> nothing is real regular with me. I try and, you know, get it when I can. Uh -huh. I uh, work comes in um, sporadically or I can get a, you know, big box of it. Um, so I try and keep up, you know, photographing things and just 
things that are of interest to me, stories that people share. I would love to invite people to um, type in their stories or share their stories, even if it's a video story or type a story because, or poem, you know, I mean, it's open to everyone. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the other thing is too, that the thing that's happened, I realize, well, I should say this, that it's, uh, well, well, no pun intended, but it's very organic in nature <laughs> in mm -hmm. that, like as a small project, it took a lot of tending and, you know, caring and, you know, we did a lot, tons of paper making events and, and getting the word out there. And then as it's grown, it's been interesting because, um, well, it was up at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I did a lot of paper making venues around that. And, and now it's going to different places. It was recently in Kalamazoo and uh, calligraphers have really embraced the project in a wonderful way. And uh, they have uh, started their own paper making um, venues, which is so great. You know, it's like, and, and they're reaching out to the community in so many different ways. It's now in, right now, it's being shown in, uh, at the Dawes Arboretum in uh, Newark, Ohio. And uh, Amanda Love, who was also a Columbia Book and Paper graduate, um, she has embraced the project and actually coined the phrase, which I really love, uh, Tree Whisper Ambassador. Um, and I realize how many different tree whisper ambassadors there have been throughout yeah. the years where they take the project. And I think she did like 21 paper making venues with the community, with kids, with um, people from assisted living from, mm. um, you know, so all these different um, places where people can join in and, and not, and make paper and get their hands wet, make something wonderful and then to share that story you know they have inside them and there's just been some like i say amazing stories so i've realized too that this uh, talking about energy again that tree whispers has its own energy mm -hmm. and i'm like i feel like i'm a vessel for this project mm -hmm. when i go into trying to into the doingness of things oh this has to be done this has to be done it's kind of like no nah, no things don't work out, you know, if I, I don't do whatever name it. And, but if I quietly listen, things come. And it was like, um, I've had so many wonderful in, in the Botanic Garden, you know, called and said, you know, would you like to show? I'm like, oh yeah, of course, you know. And, and there's all these invitations and wonderful connections that happen, like I say, very organically through the project. And, and like I say, now too with it, um, branching out with other people, making paper and inviting people. I feel like it has sort of this other component that's really wonderful too happening. Yeah, it's grow. really amazing that it um, continues to grow after 20 yeah. years. Right. The rings, I'm thinking of the rings of the tree. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, right, right, right. And, and um, well, this is a wonderful opportunity too to invite paper makers um, all over. I mean, a lot of times when you're done with the project, you have some pulp left over, maybe make a few rings, you know, share them, you know, uh, and set them aside, send them in because I often get people who aren't able to make paper and I'm able to share those with them. 
Right. So you there is information on the website. Yes. About how right. To contribute right. And get right. Involved right. With the tree mm -hmm. whispers. Yes. Yeah, or yeah. maybe somebody's listening that wants to exhibit it. Absolutely. Or, um, yeah. We've even yeah. I mean, we've even taken it into hospitals, and mm -hmm. uh, Child Life has worked with it. We've worked in um, just so many different kinds of venues where, uh, in all kinds of schools, we we've worked with the, um, you know, um, physically challenged and and. Mm -hmm. Every I, every experience has just been really wonderful, but that's paper making, right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I'm just magical. curious how, um, uh, how it looks when it's not being exhibited. Like, how many boxes is, is it? <laughs> it's growing? <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it. I, what I do is I store them. I take them down. They're they're strung in five to eight foot segments. There's there's probably more variety than that, but that's mm -hmm. kind of what I try and do because I mm -hmm. try and think. Okay, what are typical ceiling heights? But mm -hmm. so when I bring them down, I do um, uh, uh, um, take them apart and store them in. Uh, if you want to get down to nitty gritty, in baggies. And the beautiful thing is they do collapse really wonderfully. Right. I mean gently. Mm -hmm. um, and then have them in, you know, big plastic bins. Okay. So I think we just, this last time, I think I had to have a suitcase because they didn't have enough bins. But yeah, there's maybe, mm, I don't know, eight, nine bins at this point, you know, big okay. bins. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, um, a few years ago, too, I shipped it overseas and had a big crate built for that, or mm -hmm. built a crate actually myself because I was trying to figure out how am I going to do this. It's always the, the logistics of, you know. Yeah how to transport things so, so can be yeah kind of tricky. fantastic okay and let's wrap up with the story of Greenpeace which you mentioned before mm -hmm. so how did they contact you how did they find out about it and so uh, Greenpeace um, well Kate Kat Clark who um, let's see she is the creative partnerships manager and in let's see it was at the it was like the end of March I got an email from her saying you know she was with Greenpeace and just the, last March no uh, 2017 yeah. okay and said that she was interested in um, they had an event that they were going to be participating in, in New York and uh, they wanted to feature a large piece of artwork medium to large piece of artwork and um, they had been campaigning for years to protect the Great Northern Forest, and they were focusing for this, for the artwork. Uh, they wanted something showing the beauty and the importance of the forest. And somehow they found me just on the Internet. Now, you know, sometimes you get those um, emails and you're like, is yeah. this real? Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> and this was when I'm like, what? Okay. And I was so excited, and I wrote her right back. And she said, "Well, you know, they were um, there were about four or five other artists they were considering. She would she would get back to me." Now, granted, this was in March, end of March, and the the exhibit was in May, <laughs> so there wasn't like a whole lot of lead time on this. Mm -hmm. um, so they got back to me and said, "Yes, they were they were very interested in how can we make this happen." And it was very on the down low, you know, weren't supposed to talk about it because what they wanted to do was to launch the campaign at the uh, book expo at the Javits Center, which is this massive center in New York. Yeah. And, um, and they were, um, there was a company in, like I said, in Canada that 
were not using, they were cutting down ancient parts of the forest and really affecting it in so many ways. And they felt that the book publishers, um, book um, literary agents, authors, and the general public could have an impact because um, this company was one where most book publishers went to get their paper. So mm -hmm. that's why they wanted to target this audience. And, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, my life is complete. This is like, the, you know, to have your artwork to really have a voice like this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but I mean, I feel like it speaks in so many ways, but to make that kind of a connection was really um, validating for me. I was like, yeah, wow, cool. Yeah. So Tree Whispers was exhibited at the Book Expo, and it was a talking point because people exactly, would come yeah, over yeah, and say, right. "What is this?" Right, and, and what then, they, yeah, and what they wanted was something because it's such a vast, you know, chasm of a building, mm -hmm. and so they wanted they they had almost I think it was twenty by twenty by fourteen tall, and uh, they had like a uh, well. Uh, structure that was built but then we had to come in in one day mm -hmm. and figure out how we were going to hang this mm -hmm. and run to home depot and get what we needed and you know so we had kind of plotted and planned but we really didn't know exactly what we were getting into until we really saw the space but once we got in there uh, that the structure was so much bigger higher than anything else so you could see it from you know all the way across the room mm -hmm. and with the paper hanging down and it had some movement to it with you know the breeze that was going in there so it really drew a lot of people over there and then the other part of the space they were able to engage people and talk to them and have them have a petition going which is our voices are vital and mm -hmm. I believe it's still going on so yeah we'll yeah yeah um, be sure to connect with that as well because um, and and um, well, not only were they um, campaigning for better uh, practices, logging practices, they were also, the reason it was called Our Voices Are Vital is because the company was suing Greenpeace for millions of dollars mm. to quiet them. Ah. So um, I think it was in October, I finally got a note that said the case was dismissed. So I was really happy to oh, know yeah. that, that it really something had an impact and but during that time too I was able to work with several of the Greenpeace um, uh, people and uh, supporters and what an incredible dedicated um, group uh, this is and working strictly on donations you know it's, and they had a meeting they said Do you want to come and I was like oh yeah I'd love to come mm -hmm. so we're in New York City but it was this tiny little office we're all you know and so it's not like they're spending money on you know extravagant Overhead, things yeah, yeah they're there uh, to do the work yeah and I was curious whether how they got the space at the Javits Center do you know like did they have to pay for a booth or did they convince uh, someone to donate well, my guess is that they had to pay for the booth. Yeah. I'm guessing, yeah. yeah. But like I say, they're they run through donations, so perhaps someone donated. I don't know. I yeah. don't know that yeah. that logistics. I um, I wasn't paid. You know, I mean, I donated my time and mm -hmm. services, and mm -hmm. uh, I stayed. I did see overnight one night. Otherwise, I, my daughter's in New York, so I stayed with her. Mm -hmm. um, 
the other nights, but the night that we installed, I did stay down there just so we could, you know, have the whole time to really get things as we wanted. Right. Them, so. And did you engage the public in tree whispers at all at that event? Or yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was. Yeah. It was really wonderful. And they gave. I mean, they had the you know the logo and they had the information. So it was truly a partnership there. Yeah. And I felt like you know the voices you know spoke from everywhere you know so from the project and also from their um component of what yeah, they were working to, right. toward yeah and uh is tree whispers on exhibit anywhere now or? yeah right now it's at the the uh, dawes arboretum in uh, newark ohio okay. and uh yeah it i think it's going to be up there until march 1st the end of february march 1st Okay, and this episode will air after that. Do you have any plans for exhibiting uh, come down the road? I have uh, nothing concrete. There's several people that we that I've been talking to, so okay. but it's still in the working. But anybody that's interested, um, mm -hmm. I'm happy to you know talk with them. It's been interesting in that it's shown in, like I said, the Chicago Botanic Gardens, and now in the Arboretum. At Kalamazoo, it was at the Nature Center in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those kinds of places is just feels like a natural um, yeah. sort of um, marriage. People find it who are already out hiking and, and in nature and interested in that. Um, galleries are wonderful too, um, mm -hmm. but I feel like that those nature centers are just really have been wonderful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And um, what what are you working on right now? Do you have Do you have a daily practice? I'm curious. Well, my bike ride is my daily Your practice. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. so however however that and and I sort of have a lot of balls in the air. Um, mm -hmm. You know, teaching and doing different things as well. Um, the thing that I'm working on now, more most specifically, is working. Um, you know, we're talking about handmade paper, both as a substrate and then as its own form. But now I've kind of sort of coming back into using the paper. I have these uh, sheets that I've made um, and they have natural inclusions in them and with cymatic forms, but then I'm also going back into them with geometry, geometric uh, proportions, which, you know, you find in nature everywhere. That to me has been most fascinating right now. That's kind of where um, a lot of my work has been going in that way, but also working again back onto handmade paper that I've made and then uh, coming back into it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then you teach uh, calligraphy? Is that and I teach, teach, well, I teach, teach? The two, two classes and typically through calligraphy guilds. I mean, I mm -hmm. taught for a while at Columbia, but um, uh, most that was years ago. Uh, now most of my teaching is through calligraphy guilds. Um, or uh, different calligraphy, or not even calligraphy, but art centers. Um, mm -hmm. I'll be up in, up in uh, Wisconsin, Whispering Woodlands, and then uh, also doing a workshop or retreat up in Bayfield, Wisconsin with Peter Fredredeus and Kate Miller, uh, which is a four or five day retreat, which will really be wonderful. But what I teach, although it comes from the calligraphic family, is uh, the spontaneous mark an alternative image 
And then another class that I teach typically is a class called Lifelines, which is using geometry and, and mark making and that kind of thing. So it's not calligraphy per se. I have done that in the past as well, taught, um, you know, everything from beginning to um, brush lettering and that kind of thing. But right now it's more, the, those are kind of the directions that I've been going for my teaching. But yeah, so that's, yeah. you know, there's that preparation and time too. And, and, uh, right. And then people can find out about your work and your teaching on your website, which right. is, mm -hmm. uh, Pamela .com. Mm -hmm. All right. And we'll put that on the web, on the webpage for the episode too. And Paul's is P A U L S R U D. Right. Thank yeah. you. Right. Well, Pam, it's been such a treat talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Likewise. Thank you, Helen. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Reason.